0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the 10th in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. Be sure to check out our website, www.thenowledgecenteratchadoc.com. Or check out iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for previous as well as future episodes with Mr. Trout. And now your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter.
1: It reminds me of the comment about trauma that it's not being stuck in the past is not being able to be in the present. That you can't differentiate this is now, this is not that. And Anything that's slightly similar takes it right back to that original traumatic experience. I've, I always thought that quote was kind of profound because I think that's not quite how we generally, oh, you're, you're stuck back at what happened to you when really it's, no, I can't be here. Like And know that this isn't that anymore.
2: And the I that's speaking there, we, we have to remember, because we're, we're on that part of the conversation right now, the biology part. The eye that's speaking is a brain. It's not as if the whole person is in control of the brain. The brain is reacting before anything else can get into gear. Yes. I was uh, startled by some work in biology, uh, actually supported, as I recall, by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. They were trying to figure out a whole bunch of stuff about why people made claims for uh, physical injury years after an accident occurred. And they found a whole bunch of things. But one of them was that people who still have neck injury complaints and claims a decade after an alleged whiplash event are not those who experienced a harsher whiplash event am i being clear so far yes
1: i'm following nothing
2: to do with the badness of the accident it has more to do with whether they were abused as little children and that's that's the only variable they knew how to evaluate at the time they did not evaluate other childhood traumas so they just looked at abuse and lo and behold whatever happens to brains of certain children when they are abused sets them up to react differently when they are about to have an accident. They stiffen differently, they tighten themselves differently, they hold themselves differently. And as a result, they do actually experience more damage to the neck muscles and the skeletal uh, frame than do people who were not abused with mm-hmm. There was a similar finding, although it's been equivocated since, that some of the boys uh, that first came back with PTSD, uh, we noticed uh, there was an overrepresentation among them of boys who had themselves been uh, traumatized or physically abused when they were little boys. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, my point was only just to remind us that the reactivity of the body. Yes is sometimes beyond the control of the child in the moment. That's one side of the efforts to um, influence the trauma, to influence the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's an important side. I mean, it, it means that many of the things we do as parents, and even as therapists for that matter, to try to calm an excited organism down when it experiences a, an explosion of the original trauma in the here and now, are dumb. We say, calm down, or I won't have you talking to me like that, or what's the matter, or any of a number of really pretty dumb and off-mark responses when you think about what the organism is actually experiencing. First of all, like you said a minute ago, the organism isn't even there. The child isn't there in the moment. He's somewhere else. In another moment, what
1: might be better things to say? Well,
2: what well, I've watched, what I've watched mothers and fathers say and do, uh, I'm not suggesting that it's always effective, much less immediately so, is just join the child. Uh, maybe making loud noises, uh, but sometimes that's not good either. But always saying, "I know, I know." I know sometimes with a touch, but sometimes the touch is the wrong thing to do, but always with a voice that's not so mismatched with the feeling state of the child at the time that it actually feels awful. There's a certain voice that parents can use that's that's would be, for me, very soothing, but for a, a child in a state of reactivity is only experienced as, you couldn't possibly know because your voice says you're on another planet from the planet my brain is on right now. I think I'm going to die. And you're talking sing song. Mm.
1: There there can't be such a gap in what you're putting out um, versus what the child's experiencing. It reminds me, I recently read an article about um, people that are uh, if you're nervous or anxious about something, um, they did some research and um, looked at if people told themselves to calm down, very, very little changed. But if they change their language to I'm excited about this instead of I'm a, I'm nervous about this, then that helped because that was close enough to the nervousness, like the calm. I'm just going to get calm now, is like so far away from the feeling of anxiety, but excitement is generally a positive emotion, but has a higher, let's say, vibration, so to speak, whatever. I thought that was interesting. It's it's relevant here.
2: So the other half of the struggle to find ways to influence narratives I think is completely unresolved, at least it is for me. But I'm really fascinated by the idea that we can help children, uh, and adults for that matter, but particularly children, revisit these places from which they came. Uh, and tell their, we can tell stories to them and about them that support the idea that that was then and this is now without ever saying those words at all Um, it's it's sort of a, a a way of a way of telling the story as it actually happened the first time it happened which affirms for the child that we get it we get the full picture of what they went through and then then beginning to introduce new ideas or new characters, new saviors. Um, by, by the way, borrowing without giving credit, we are from the early writers of fairy tales who often introduced terrible, scary things in the woods and then introduced a salvation or a, um, something that helped in the moment. Although not always.
1: Yeah, some of those fairy tales are pretty rough.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I want to delineate here. Um, a very popular model is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. What that is is creating a narrative and basic of what happened uh, as best to the child's ability and continued exposure for systematic desensitization to that narrative. That is not what we're talking about.
2: That's not what we're talking about.
1: I want not... to be very clear, that's not what we're talking about.
2: I'm not, by the way, saying that's a, necessarily a terrible model. I have never practiced it myself, so I'm not equipped to speak of it. But this is not that, yes. Yeah. And- By should... the way, in real life, Systematic desensitization is really what goes on when we get better about a lot of things.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah that's true. So, and um, so, changing narratives. You, you, you. are talking about ways that that you felt uh, more clarity and understanding about narratives, how they were formed, uh, how to change them. Um, lots of information started also coming about, out, you know, as Dan Siegel, um, interpersonal neurobiology, um, you know, the, the neurobiology of how we relate to each other, um, epigenetics, some of these other discoveries. How did you react to some of those?
2: Oh, God, it was like daylight, each and every one of them just like somebody raising the blinds. I I could hardly believe when the the work started coming out about epigenetics that we had been so slow to even have much imagination about that.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: By we, I mean clinicians. I'm sure lab people had 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 imagination about it for a very long time. But why would it not be the case that we would be affected by experience at a biological level, why would it not be the case? It only stands to reason from an evolutionary perspective that what happens to us would rewire us um, so that we had either different expectancies next time or a different array of behaviors available to us next time or that we would hide better next time or run faster next time. I'll never forget my early struggles, going back even to the 70s, trying to figure out why certain kids on the Bailey, the scales of motor mental development, who had had really rotten experiences of abuse, could be okay on the um, motor scale and so terrible on the mental scale. Maybe 20 points difference. Why were their lower bodies and their extremities so well-developed? They could run like crazy. And they couldn't think well at all until I said it a few times, the question, and then it was sort of obvious, wasn't it? And that's what epigenetics offered us. It offered us a way to understand that when you have experiences, your genes will change at least in their expression. They may change permanently in ways that will be passed on to those after us. And they will change so that we can respond to the the trauma or the event. Uh, I started started to use the word better. It is better from the organism's point of view, but maybe not better from a a healthy development point of view. But what I was seeing then is kids who learned how to run. Plain and simple. Kids who, who learned what danger looked like, smelled like, felt like, faster than anybody else. I learned how to get away from it quicker than anybody else or than they could have earlier. They were changed people. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know, and I, to my knowledge, we still don't know for certain, is how much of that is permanent uh, genetic change that we will pass on to our offspring and how much of it is merely change in gene expression uh, at the moment having to do with how we will develop courses of development that that weren't in us when we were conceived but are now in us as prenates or babies or young children we turn out to be completely different people as a result of experience
1: and going along with uh, i think no discussion about this is complete without mentioning the nature versus nurture controversy and how that just turned it on its head and said it's both, stop arguing. You know, nature needs nurture or nature will respond to the environment. Um, And our our dichotomous thinking gets us in trouble all over the place. Sure does. I won't say any more about that at the moment, but with the nature versus nurture controversy, I think is a good example.
2: By the way, all of that um, involvement of biology and our thinking about child development changed dramatically, at least it did for me. Our understanding of what trauma even was in the first place. Um, I gave up long ago the idea that trauma ever refers to an event. I simply flat out reject the idea. There's no such thing, in my view, I would even go so far as to say, there's no such thing as a traumatic event. Events aren't have no such characteristics. They can be scary, they can be worrisome, and they can result in a trauma, but trauma is a neurobiological event. And that means to me, by definition, is an entirely personal phenomenon. How I respond to a gunshot going off right next to my head, or a mile away, is completely different than how you would respond to that. That can't be if gunshots going off are traumatic. It's only traumatic when our particular brains, our bodies, take in the event and find ourselves overwhelmed, even momentarily, by, by that thing that's happening. And it's that, that period of being overwhelmed when we must neurologically scurry to come up with responses and may feel ourselves bereft. We have no responses. We can't come up with anything. We, we can't get away. We don't know what to do. We're helpless. We feel hopeless. In that moment, even if it only lasts a few minutes, we have experienced a trauma. And that's likely then to make it stick.
1: Yes, so the, the, this importance that you're driving home and it's not inherent in any event. It's not, you, we, we can't say that that's just part of when that happens, it's traumatic. It's how how we respond to it. And I think kind of drawing to the end of our time, um, also two, two things um, that in and of themselves could be talked about for hours, but mirror neurons, um And the ACEs study, you know, when uh, very early on, I, before I heard a lot of people talking about ACEs, I remember you speaking about survivors of, of various forms of abuse and seeing a link with autoimmune disorders in particular, but other things. and just in the data of your own practice you were seeing this. And so, you know, what what was your response to to this information about the ACES study and, and how psychological events so strongly impact physical health?
2: Well, I I hope it's not just because of a general point of view of excitement about developmental issues, but for me, that news was thrilling. Because it did just kick to the curb any any validity to the idea that our bodies and our brains and our souls and our hearts and our spirits any of that functions in any way separate from any of the rest of it and that was a, a joy-filled moment for me the conversation well the conversation could be continued but the debate was just over and while that may sound um, problematic that a particular person, for example, who feels rejected chronically by a parent and unable to fight back may acquire a disease that does exactly the same thing to his body that he experiences the parent having done. The disease attacks his body, and his body not only can't fight back, but seems to kind of pile on, attack itself. That seems very sad. And it is, I suppose, for an individual. But what a thrilling idea that we are all of a piece, that we can't be broken into segments.
1: And you are already on to this. And already noticed it over the years in your practice. Um, so it's let's let, let's sum up here. um you know when we, when when we look at these early ideas uh, the the ideas that came forth in um, infant parent psychotherapy and the things that you were thinking about and attachment theory, would you agree by and large? science proved it so that to to me it seems remarkable that a lot of this stuff was even though we didn't have the scientific data for it and research a lot of it was pretty on track would you say
2: a lot of it was pretty on track but then again people like you and I can be can be um, charged with seeing only what we want to see yes I mean other science meanwhile was working very hard to misinterpret the data and, for example, drug the dickens out of children. While while we were working on ideas that would help us understand the nature of overactivity in little kids as a developmental and a responsive and and even an adaptive phenomenon, a whole bunch of the world was looking at it only as a disease with a name, And a whole long list of drugs that could be used to control it. So we haven't always been paired with science. But science has done nothing, in my view, to demean the work of people in in development and vice versa.
1: Yes, that's true. And... um... And just to clarify, you're also not meaning n- no medication would ever be helpful with the uh, child's behavior, um, but you're right, you know, it, it went very strongly in that direction. And the, and the last thing I want to mention um, as, as you bring that up is even now, you know, Jerome Kagan had that famous argument with Dan Siegel that attachment attachment theory's bunk um which kind of blew up the whole conference <laughs> so you know we have to be, keep thinking and and be open and, and and listen to critics evaluate what we keep what we don't you know it's a process any final comments about that and all your wisdom
2: no but you'll you'll you and the listeners will laugh at me one final time when I say I thought that was a very cool moment. <laughs> when you think about two hot shots, I mean, Siegel walked down the aisle to challenge him at the podium. When you think of two hot shots in child development, arguing that ferociously, boy, this stuff must really matter. Yes. And though they have radically different points of view, it th- doesn't bother me very much. That doesn't, ha- that doesn't wipe anybody out. It just means, boy, this matters a lot. And it stands to reason that there would be passion uh, about it.
1: Well, wow, that's that's a great, great closing. So thank you for talking again today. Um, and I look forward to speaking again.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, www.thenowledgecenteratchaddock.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbeam for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.